Welcome to Counter Melody, the podcast on great singers and great singing. I am your host, Daniel Gundlach, and I am thrilled to share with you the opera and classical singers about whom I am most passionate. I hope that when you hear these voices, you might echo me in saying, God, I love her, or God, I love him. Now, Without any further ado, I bring you this week's episode. I wanted to bring my heart to the audience, sing out my heart. And I always believe that how big is an audience, there's as many hearts as the audience. And when one heart speaks to another, it's understood. My dear listeners, what you've just heard was the beauteous French-Russian mezzo-soprano Jenny Turel, both singing and speaking. She's featured today on yet another Needle Drop segment, which features rare recordings from the past, which have received limited release since their first appearance. This one features the 1964 recording Jenny Turel, sings Rossini and Poulenc, issued on the Columbia Records label, with whom Jenny Turrell had a career-long association. Here she is accompanied by the American pianist Alan Rogers, who was one of her collaborative pianists toward the end of her career. The first track that you heard from that album was the Ariette Villageoise of Joaquin Rossini from his posthumous collection, Péché de Vieillesse, or Sins of My Old Age. This is actually set to a text of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, of all people. 
I'd like to say a word or two about the Péché de Vieillesse. Rossini was known primarily as an operatic composer, of course, but at a certain point in his career, after the composition of Guillaume Tell, William Tell, he simply stopped writing operas. According to the notes by Martin Bernheimer on the back cover of this record, he lived a seemingly happy, self-indulgent life in a Paris that idolized him, with only his neurasthenia and legal battles as unpleasant distractions. His creative urge evidently remained active, though, at a different level, for Rossini continued to compose sacred pieces, instrumental solos, and over 40 songs. And most of those songs form part of the Péché de Vieillesse, which is a collection that his widow sold to an auction house and which were published after his death. But it's interesting that there would be such a divide between Rossini's career between operatic and song, because that's also one could make the same claim of Jenny Turrell herself. What to say about Jenny Turrell? She was an extraordinary singer. You heard that little quote from her at the beginning, speaking of her heart and how she brought her heart and everything that she was to her audience. That was from a 1969 conversation with John Ardoin in Dallas. I'll have a little bit more from that at the end of the podcast. She was born in 1900. There's a certain degree of controversy concerning her actual birth, place, and date. She seemed in a way to almost encourage that ambiguity about her origins. But what is generally accepted now is that she was born in Vitebsk, which is now Belarus, and her last name was Davidovich. And her family fled Russia after the Russian Revolution and settled in Gdansk in Poland, and from there moved to Paris. And there she studied voice with Reynaldo Ahn, who we have discussed briefly here. For instance, in the Ellie Ameling episode, we heard his song La Dernière Valse. He also made some really remarkable recordings as both singer and pianist, and of course was also a composer. As well as being the boyfriend of Marcel Proust. Don't forget that part. We always like to acknowledge our gay brothers and sisters when that opportunity presents itself. She also studied with a singer named Anna El Tour, and it is said that she changed her name to Tourelle by taking El Tour's name and transposing the syllables. She denied that this was the case, but where else do you get Tourell from? I don't know. She made her debut in Paris in 1931 as Carmen. As she says in the interview with Ardoin, it's rather interesting to begin one's career at the very top like that. And she did sing a number of significant roles at the Opéra Comique and eventually, as was necessary because she was Jewish, she had to flee Paris and came to the United States via Portugal. One of her early performances in New York was under the baton of Toscanini, who engaged her to sing Berlioz's Romeo et Juliette. From there, she made debuts under both Leopold Stokowski and Serge Kusevitsky. And because of the exposure gained from those appearances, she also sang at the Met. She made her debut there as Ambroise Thomas Mignon, which is very seldom done these days, but was still relatively popular in May 1937 at the time of her debut. She also was the first 
mezzo-soprano to sing Rosina in Barbieri di Siviglia at the Met. She also sang Carmen and Adalgisa there. Her career at the Met was not terribly long-lived, but I do believe that she made a significant contribution. And in fact, she recorded Rossini arias with Pietro Cimara conducting the Met Orchestra for Columbia Records. Those are some of her earliest recordings for Columbia. She continued to record for them up until I think her final recording was released in 1972, and that was of a Carnegie Hall recital that she gave with Leonard Bernstein in 1969. What is so remarkable about Turrell, among other things, she has a very distinct and unusual, one might even say peculiar vocal quality, and yet her technique is so secure that even at the date of that recital with Bernstein in 1969, even at the time of this Rossini recording in 1964, when she was 64 years old, even at the time of her farewell recital in New York in 1972, she sounds remarkably fresh and very secure. She also had a great deal of flexibility that remained part of her vocal arsenal through the very end of her career. Also, she sang some very important premieres, probably the most famous of which is her creation of the role of Baba the Turk in Stravinsky's Rake's Progress in Venice in 1951. She also had, as I mentioned earlier, the collaboration with Leonard Bernstein. He was a very close colleague and friend of hers. He wrote the song cycles I Hate Music for her in 1943 and La Bonne Cuisine in 1949. Recordings of all of those are available and they're enormously charming. Something that I was interested to discover recently is that she also sang the premiere of Paul Hindemith's revised Marienleben cycle in 1949. I know that there's a very obscure and difficult to obtain Columbia recording of this. I'm trying to get my hands on it and I'm not sure that my listenership will take enormous interest in hearing the entire cycle, but I do hope to come back to you at some point in the future with at least some excerpts from that very interesting cycle. Since we've gotten a little bit of background on Tourelle, and I've also set the stage somewhat for the Rossini songs that she sings here, let's move on to the next selection on this record. That is called Adieu à la vie, and it is again an excerpt from the Péché de Vieillesse, where the gimmick of this song will be immediately apparent to everyone, and that is that the vocal line is on one note, one pitch over and over, the elegy on a single note. It's really remarkable, and it's a perfect demonstration of Tourelle's extraordinary artistry and the way that she gave her heart to everything that she sang and her dedication to the words. So I'm really delighted to present this to you. Hail final dawn that breaks for me. He whom my heart adores wants to go away and I die. I implore you, see my mortal torment, to love you as my life, which you now have snatched away. Death is my only desire. Earth, adieu. Mother, adieu.
can't help but note that Turrell sings this entirely straight, and yet the extreme melodrama of the text certainly lends itself to perhaps exaggeration. And yet what makes her performance so wonderful is that she doesn't milk it. She simply sings it straight and you feel the pathos and yet you find a certain aspect of the humor in it as well. I think the same is true for this next song, which is called Petite Mélodie sur la gamme chinoise. In other words, a little melody on the Chinese scale. The subtitle is L'Amour à Pékin, Love in Beijing. Now, Martin Bernheimer says here, this surprising little exercise in musical chinoiserie finds Rossini experimenting with the exotic scales that were to become the foundation of Debussy's impressionistic writing a century later. Now, one might debate the use of the word impressionism in describing Debussy. I think we have slightly changed our viewpoint on that. But it is interesting that Rossini is making use of an exotic scale here. And once again, the text is well, not only stunningly imperialistic and disturbing in that regard, but very much of the period. One could also potentially find humor in the exaggerated emotions of this song. But once again, Tourell completely underplays it. You're allowed by her poker-facedness to impose your own meaning on it. My beloved will never return to our land. One day he came with the war and I found love. From a great country called France, the Mandarin called him far away. There is only one hope for me, to follow his destiny or else to die. Adored celestial empire, no more of you if he cannot be mine. My beloved, the loss of your heart is death and despair. Your love is happiness. Yes, happiness.
I hope that you all heard and appreciated one of those beautiful qualities of Tourelle's voice that she exploited in that last song, her ability to float an exquisite pianissimo, which you will also hear in other songs on this record, particularly the Poulenc. Now I'd like to just say a word about the next song, which is called A Grenade in Grenada. A good friend of mine, the mezzo-soprano Anatona, has recorded all of Rossini's Spanish pieces, and she was kind enough to share with me the liner notes that were written for the recording by the Rossini expert Reto Müller. I'm just going to summarize what he has to say about A Grenade. Rossini intended two compositions of his based on Spanish themes to be included in the manuscript of the Peche de Vieilles, which he bequeathed to his wife upon his death. Unfortunately, the publisher, Léon Escudier, got his hands on them and published them without Rossini's approval in the year 1864, which caused Rossini to remove them from the cache of manuscripts which comprised the Péché de Vieillesse, which were intended to be sold by his widow at a very high profit. As with so many of the other Rossini songs on this recording, the texts are by Emilien Pacini. Just take a glance at the translation here. So it's a story. Night reigns over Granada. Love lies in wait and silently sighs. O you whom I call, hearken to my faithful voice. In great, do you not come? Must I always languish? To love him, to see him again, that is my golden dream. I hear the clop of his valiant steed. The echo scintillates under the steel hoofs. He is coming to me, he's coming to me. My heart leaps from hope, but all is quiet. Oh, fatal mistake. In the second verse, she once again hears the valiant steed, but this time he's actually there.
Now, this last song of Rossini's on this record is called the Chanson de Zora, or La Petite Bohemienne, The Little Gypsy. This song exploits all of the aspects of Tourelle's art, which are still in full display. It's a remarkably charming performance, and I'm not going to give away the little je ne sais quoi that is revealed at the first refrain and comes back again the second time. So, people of the plain or of the rugged mountain, I know not where I come from nor where I go. I find, alas, even in your Brittany, the weather, the road, and fortune harsh, but I must entertain you and earn my wages. Zora will smile, Zora will dance. Ha ha ha. Every day my life is humble. I hear shouts of, come on, get going, amuse us. Sing and laugh, gypsy. It's so sweet to weep alone sometimes. But God is my father and God tells me hope. Yes, Zora will smile, Zora will dance. Zora will sing, smile, sing. Ha 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 all of that happy talk. Through the plain, 
in a way that is my favorite of the Rossini songs that Jenny Turrell offers on this recording. I think she perfectly captures the enforced gaiety of this virtually enslaved little gypsy of the title. I adore the use of the castanets. I hope that Jenny Turrell herself was playing them. I have no idea if she actually did or not. I know that she was a very famed interpreter of the title role of Carmen. It's quite possible that in relation to that she had to learn to play the castanets. And even though I think her last assumption of Carmen was in 1949, she still might, some 15 years later, have still had the chops to play the castanets. I don't know if that's the case or not. I also wanted to acknowledge the contribution on this recording of Alan Rogers, the American collaborative pianist, who these days maybe isn't as well remembered as he should be. He was particularly known as a master of the French repertoire. He collaborated with singers such as Marcial Saint-Guerre, Pierrette Allary, Léopold Simoneau, and of course Jenny Tourelle. I found an obituary for him online. I couldn't find the author of the original post, but it's clearly someone who is familiar with his work. I just want to tell you a little bit about him, and I'm going to quote very briefly from that. His career began with winning the Concert Artists Guild competition in 1952. In conjunction with that, he made his town hall debut playing a recital that featured the American premiere of the Piano Sonata by Paul Duca. Then it says, rather than pursuing a career as a soloist, Mr. Rogers brought his interest in poetry in many languages and in the song literature to his work as a collaborative pianist. Mentions other singers that he worked with, including Eileen Farrell, Lich Albanese, Elena Nicolaidi, and Theodore Upman, as well as Jan Pierce, with whom he made a live recording of a recital in Carnegie Hall in, I believe it was 1964. In 1969, he came to the New England Conservatory and in 1974 moved to Boston University, where he taught until his retirement, which would have been in the early 1990s. His last years were shadowed by injuries sustained when he was hit by a car while walking near his home. Although he recovered from the accident and continued to teach and perform, his health was permanently affected. After his retirement from BU, he continued to work on a limited basis, playing distinguished performances in Emmanuel Music's series of concerts devoted to the songs of Debussy, Schumann, and Brahms. There follow in this obituary several tributes from those who had worked with him, and I'm going to quote from the tribute that Michael Beatty, the collaborative pianist, paid to him. Mr. Rogers turned my life upside down in the most wonderful way. My left hand was basically asleep until I met him, and he taught me how important the bass line is. He was the most meticulously well-prepared classroom teacher I have ever encountered. He showed us a new kind of depth in terms of what poetry means and how it affects the piano part in a song. We certainly will hear that on particular display in his performance of The Fiancé Pour Rire, which follows. 
I want to say just a few brief words about the fiancée. The poet of these verses is Louise de Villemorin, who lived from 1903 to 1969. In recent years, there has been a real resurgence of interest in Villemorin. These tributes include a postage stamp that was issued approximately a year ago on the 50th anniversary of her death, and an exhibition that is going on right now through the 15th of March at the Maison de Chateaubriand, which is less than an hour south from the center of Paris, which focuses on Villemorin's artistic output, as well as objet trouvé, shall we say. If you watch the video that I have linked to on the show notes page, you can see this adorable little homosexual who is responsible for the exhibition. Louise du Villemorin is also known as the author of two rather famous novellas that were both made into significant films. The first is called Madame de dot dot dot, and it was made into the Max Ophüls film The Earrings of Madame de dot dot dot. <laughs> and it starred Daniel Darieux, Charles Boyer, and Vittorio De Sica. If you haven't seen it, you really must must, must. It is a masterful, beguiling film. She also wrote a novella called Juliette. It was made into a film in 1953, directed by Marc Allegri, who, at a very young age, was a lover of André Gide. Again, we like to acknowledge our gay brethren here. The stars of the film are Danny Robin and Jean Marais. Again, another homo, a longtime lover of Jean Cocteau, who also recognized and encouraged Villemorin's talent. In a secondary role in that film is also Jeanne Moreau, and she also features in the later career of Louise de Villemorin because she stars in the 1958 film Les Amants, directed by Louis Mal, for which Louise de Villemorin wrote the script, and which was the subject of an obscenity trial in the United States. Just <laughs> bringing it all back home here, folks. Anyway, let's get back to her poetry and the provenance of this cycle in particular. I'm assuming that anyone tuning into this podcast already knows and loves the music of Francis Poulenc. Again, not to put too fine a point on this, but yet another... They're just crawling out of the woodwork on this episode. I apologize. This cycle, Fiancailles pour Rire, was written in 1939, while Villemorin and her second husband, a Hungarian count, were holed up at his estate in Hungary, and Boulenc was very much missing his friend. He first set her poetry in 1937 and encouraged her to write more poems. In all, he set a total of 12 of her poems in three different collections of songs, of which Fiancailles is the most famous. In his book, Journal de mes Mélodies, Diary of My Songs, he wrote the following about Villemorin. Few people move me as much as Louise de Villemorin because she is beautiful, 
because she is lame, because she writes French of an innate purity, because her name evokes flowers and vegetables, because she loves her brothers like a lover and her lovers like a sister. Her beautiful face recalls the 17th century, as does the sound of her name. Two references must be briefly explained. The reference to fruits and vegetables refers to the provenance of the Villemorin's family wealth. The family business was botany and purveyors of seeds, and which remains active in France today. The reference to lameness refers to a childhood illness that left her with a slight limp. Villemorin was very active sexually and in, was involved throughout her life with many different men, including at both the beginning and end of her life with André Malraux, the famous author who also occupied the position of Minister of Cultural Affairs for the French government between 1959 and 1969. There's been an astonishing amount, really, of snide and even misogynistic commentary about Villemorin, who may or may not have always been the nicest person. This was something that I was amused by. I found a master's thesis, which I discovered upon reading it, is a work of, shall we say, no great originality or insight. But this was my favorite sentence, referring to Villemorin. She was known to be a rather promiscuous woman. In fact, she was the mistress of many men, presumably at different times. Horrors. It's long past time to return to the music, and that's exactly what I'm going to do right now. So in the place of actual translations for this uh, fiancée, Columbia Records provided us with paraphrases by Jenny Tourelle of the poems. First one, La Dame d'André, André's lady. André does not know the lady whom he takes today by the hand. Did she wander in a vague dress looking for an engagement ring between the millstones? Was she afraid when evening came, watched by the shadows of yesterday in her garden as winter approached. He loved her for her color, for her gentleness on Sundays. Would she turn pale looking at the white pages of her album, which she keeps from better days? Oh, <laughs> 
number two, sur l'herbe, on the grass. I can say no more, nor do any more for him. He died for his fair one. He died for his dead fair one. Outside, under the tree of the law, in the middle of the silence, in the middle of the landscape on the grass, he died unnoticed, weeping on his way, calling, calling for me. But as I was far from him and his voice no longer carried, he died alone in the forest, under his childhood tree, and I can say no more, nor do anything for him. The third song is called Il Vol, and Il Vol is a play on words. It means both he steals and he flies, or it flies. It's almost impossible to translate this in a meaningful way. The setting sun is mirrored on the polished table, like the fabled cheese caught in the beak of my silver gilt scissors. But where is the crow? He flies. I want to sew, but a magnet draws away all my needles. In the square, the skittle players while away the time. But where's my lover? He flies. I have a thief for a lover. So here's, for instance, Mais où est mon amant? Il vole. But where's my lover? He's fled. Or he's stolen. C'est un voleur que j'ai pour amant. Le corbeau vole et mon amant vole. The crow flies and my lover steals. Well, the crow is also stealing and the lover is also fleeing. That's the play on words here. 
He steals my heart and leaves me with empty promises. The crow steals the cheese and is gone. But where is happiness? It flies away. Il vole. I weep under the weeping willow, and my tears mingle with the leaves. I weep, for I want him to want me, but cannot please my thief. But where has love gone? Il vole. Find the rhyme of my lost reason, and through the country lanes bring me back my flighty love, who steals hearts and my reason. I want my thief to steal me. Ramenez-moi mon amant volage, qui prend les cœurs et perd ma raison. Je veux que mon voleur me vole. It takes as long to explain that song as it does to listen to it. The next song is called Mon cadavre est doux comme un gant. My corpse is soft as a glove. We're back to Jenny Tourelle's paraphrases. My corpse is soft as a glove, and the pupils of my eyes are glazed and make two white stones of my eyes, two white stones in my face, speechless in silence, shadowed by a secret and heavy with my dead weight of remembrances.
The next song is called Violon, Violin. A loving pair of accents. The violin and its player please me. I love these cries stretched on a string of restlessness. The heart, in the shape of a strawberry, offers itself to love like an unknown fruit. This is one of the most popular and frequently excerpted songs from this cycle. I'd like to draw your attention to Tourelle's underplaying. So often, people take the café concert aspect of this song and really exaggerate it and turn it into something quite ungainly. And Tourelle absolutely refuses to do that. But I would also suggest that she is keenly alert to the erotic charge in this song. In relation to this, I would just like to offer a short quote from an article that Richard Dyer wrote about Jenny Turrell shortly after her death. This is from the New York Times, the 22nd of September, 1974. Turrell was the most worldly of our singers. She did reach the heart, but by way of the head, the funny bone, and the libido. She was most at home in music of high intellectual content, of delicate sensuality, of sophisticated eroticism, of arched eyebrow humor. Hers is a centric art, which some might consequently find wanting in the kind of vividness that comes from deviance. This last song is truly an exquisite one. It's called Fleur or Flowers. Promised flowers, flowers held in my arms, flowers which escape from the parenthesis of a step. 
Who brought you these winter flowers, sprinkled with sand from the sea, the sand of your kisses, faded flowers of love? Beautiful eyes are made of cinders, and in the fireplace a heart ribboned with laments burns with its holy recollections. This song tends to bring out the best in all those who interpret it, but I think this might be the most beautiful version of it that I've ever heard. I have in my mind Jenny Turell at this point, certainly une femme d'un certain âge, a woman of a certain age, looking back on what might have at the time been an enormously heartbreaking love affair with clear eyes, a clear head, and dry eyes, and in spite of the former pain, still finding the beauty in it. I was going to supplement this episode with a few other clips of Jenny Turell singing both Rossini and Poulenc, but I really think it's best to simply give the artist the final word. And I mean that literally.
At the beginning, I quoted from her interview with John Arduin in 1969 in Dallas. I'm going to present a slightly edited version of a short segment of that extended interview with Turell offering her thoughts on what is most important in being an artist. By the way, the singer she mentions here is the indelible Spanish coloratura mezzo-soprano con Chita Supervia, who was also a great interpreter of the title role of Carmen, as well as being clearly a superb recitalist. Having had the experience when you were very young of coming into the operatic world at a time when there were still many greats like Supervia and like Muzio and other people, I think you have a unique vantage point about what's happened in the world of song. And I think a tremendous change has taken place in the last years in the style and the approach and the type of singing. May I ask you just what do you think has happened to singing since the early days of your career? Well, since we're talking about Supervia, I think she was the first one to, to show me what, uh, what a recital is, what is a singer. I understood with her for the first time the power of communication. I remember I used to walk away from her recitals in Paris, walking through the streets in a trance, because she moved me. Mm-hmm. And that was my background. Doesn't matter whenever she sang, whatever she sang, I was there. I was dedicated to that idea. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, with the young singers, they're dedicated to commercialism. And that's why the ideal of singing is very, very rare. No. Of course, I was brought up again on a different kind of careers. For me, the main thing was to, as I said before, to be liked and loved by the public. Mm -hmm. I wanted to bring my whole being, my whole blood, my, my mind, my heart, my soul, to the people. I'm blessed with this kind of uh, situation that I'm on the stage now for many, many years. When I came to this country, it was still that, you know, we still had Elizabeth Schumann, we had Lotte Lehmann, those were the, the most important singers mm-hmm. at that time when I came. And there, was, there were recitals, and that generation was really educated with these people. I remember when I first came to this country and I gave my first recital, it was like hitting someone between two eyes because they didn't know what's happening, that the woman stayed. Yeah, I don't speak about New York, naturally, but no. I speak about small, very small towns when Columbia sent me on the community concerts. But I didn't go down to the public. Mm-hmm. I wanted the public to come up to me. Oh, amen. And I didn't want, I, I, I never wanted to have a success with only that, that I'm going to sing some song that they can hum. Yeah. My feeling of, the, of my concerts at that time was, I wanted to bring my heart to the audience, sing out my heart. And I always believe that no matter how many, how big is an audience, they, there's as many hearts as the audience. And when one heart speaks to another, it's understood. Thank you again for joining me for this tribute to the great Jenny Turrell. Next week begins a special series of episodes on African-American artists in honor of Black History Month. As always, I thank Alan Segal for his musical underscoring and Steve Robinson for his assistance in all matters related to the production of this podcast. Also, a reminder to visit the website devoted to this podcast, countermelodypodcast.com. That's countermelodypodcast, one word, dot com. 
I include show notes for each episode. This week's show notes feature side notes on Louise Duville-Morin and Ellen Rogers, as well as some marvelous LP cover reproductions from over the course of Jenny Turrell's distinguished recording career. In the very near future, I will be undertaking another crowdfunding initiative. If you wish to contribute before then, please do so via the website or via my Patreon page, which you can access by searching for countermelody at patreon.com. Thank you so much. Gundlach. <laughs>